men are told to ignore their pain. We're taught to ignore how things make you feel. We live in a world, particularly in the modern West, that tells us that the intellect is superior to the emotions. Welcome back to episode three of Real Men Do Cry. I'm your host, Jaron Deutsch. With me today is Dr. Timothy Golden. He is a professor at Walla Walla University with a PhD and a law degree. Dr. Golden had a TED Talk called Suffering in Silence, the Emotional Abuse of Men. The TED Talk has over 1 million views to date. In our interview, he tells his story of ongoing emotional abuse that almost cost him his life, how to know if you're in an unhealthy relationship, and the importance of therapy. So where does your story begin? My story begins in the late 1990s. I met a young woman and I fell in love with her. We got married in September of 1996. We were engaged for two years. And at the end of our two-year engagement, we got married. During our engagement, I began to notice that my ex-wife was very preoccupied with my physical appearance. Specifically, she was preoccupied with my size. She would say things to me like, I've never dated anyone as big as you. I've been attracted to other guys who I've never even dated more than I am attracted to you. These things were very painful and they hurt me. And then, so then people will say, well, if this was happening when you were engaged, then why did you go ahead and get married? I have two answers to that question. One, when you're in love with someone, you sometimes think to a fault that you can love that person through whatever is hurting you. I was 26 when I got engaged and 28 when I got married. And I think my naivete just got the best of me. I bought into a lot of the fairy tale romance that you get from American culture, whether it's from Hollywood, or whether it's from religion, frankly, specifically Christianity often pushes a narrative of marriage that says that as long as a man loves his wife deeply enough, the two of them can overcome anything together. And I think I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. That was one reason why I didn't walk away from the relationship. And another reason I didn't walk away, I thought it was just me. I thought I was being too sensitive. I thought that those statements bothered me, not because they were really troublesome, but because I had something wrong with me. And because I grew up in a household, as I said in my TED Talk, with essentially four fathers, right? My father and three brothers, I'm the youngest. It was a very masculine household and there's nothing wrong with being masculine, but one of the drawbacks of contemporary understandings of masculinity is that men are told to ignore their pain, right? We're taught to ignore how things make you feel. We live in a world, particularly in the modern West, that tells us that the intellect is superior to the emotions. That tells us that the emotions are relegated to the periphery of human experience and are really not good for anything other than making us feel better. And we have a facts over feelings sort of mentality, especially as it applies to men. And so in addition to my naivete of thinking that I could actually love my wife enough to get her to stop saying these things to me and to get her to love me, 
I also thought that maybe I was making much ado about nothing. It was in this context that despite how badly I felt, I sort of did the manly thing and I sucked it up and I moved forward. We got married. I was engaged in 1994. I was married two years later in 1996. Much to my chagrin and my surprise, frankly, the harder I worked at pleasing my ex-wife, the less successful I was at winning her over. Mm -hmm. It seemed that she became more and more preoccupied with my weight as the marriage continued. She was so preoccupied with it that I could almost predict when there would be an episode of hostility. It typically happened every three to six months during the marriage. I was married to a woman who had a personality that inclined her toward extensive assessment, yeah. not necessarily of herself, but of her life. Toward the end of each year, she would sort of take stock of what her life was like. And in any area that she came up short, I would almost invariably be the one to blame for that. And a big part of that blame was her continued dissatisfaction with my physical appearance and my weight. And how long did this go on for? This continued on for the entire 19-year marriage. But year six, it got really bad one summer. I believe it would have been July of 2002, uh, when we were coming up on our six-year wedding anniversary. It got so bad to the point where she demanded that I go to a weight loss center. So I did. I went to a weight loss center. Over the course of about a year, I lost 75 pounds. Wow. It was almost as though it didn't mean anything to her at all. I thought this was great, right? Yeah. I thought this would go away, but it didn't. She seemed completely oblivious, A, to the fact that I had lost weight, and B, to any of my efforts. And it was at this point that I began to think to myself, maybe it isn't really my weight at all that is the problem. But rather than try to figure that out, I felt so bad that I sort of sunk into a depression yeah. afterwards. In not long not a long period of time, I gained just about all the weight back because I got literally no reaction. There's something terribly demeaning in an intimate relationship like a marriage about being told that you have to lose weight in order to be accepted or in order to be loved or granted access to the comfort and stability that a marriage is intended to bring, you must make some sort of alteration to your physical appearance. And if you compound that demeaning attitude on top of having done the thing my wife wanted me to do and her still not being satisfied, this just became devastating to me. About six years into the marriage, I just settled in for the reality that my wife did not want me. Yeah. That became an abiding truth in the marriage. The baseline of our romantic relationship was that no matter what happens, don't forget that your wife doesn't want you. She does not want you romantically, sexually. This, of course, is devastating to a man. It would be devastating to a woman, too. 
but it, it was especially devastating. And because I was told to overlook how I felt, to put how I felt off to the side, as badly as that baseline reality made me feel, that's what I did. I put it to the side and I pushed forward. And you were part of a religious community during this time. One of the real dysfunctions of religious communities, particularly as it relates to marriage, and here I'm speaking of a Christian community, when you have insular Christian communities that promote marriage, there's nothing wrong with the promotion of marriage in itself. But at times, the promotion of marriage becomes toxic because the community tends to exalt quantity of time married versus the quality of life within that marriage. People in religious communities, in Christian communities or Islamic communities or whatever the religious faith is, Jewish communities, need to stop and take a hard look at the kinds of pressures that are put on people within those communities in the name of spiritual values. Because we are often told, I know I was told as a part of my Christian community that divorce was the worst thing in the world, that you should only get divorced if your spouse commits adultery, that God hates divorce, and that the wedding vows are sacred, and you can't leave, you can't break those vows, you made a promise, and so on and so forth. And all of that is true. But I find it difficult to believe that when a woman stands at the altar on her wedding day and says that she intends to be with her husband for better or for worse, that she is contemplating her husband physically abusing her and remaining in that relationship. I don't think that when a woman says, I do, she is signing on to staying in the marriage despite physical abuse from her husband. I find it equally as untenable to believe that when a man says, I do, he is signing on to have his self-worth undermined steadily and consistently over time by his wife. So we take very seriously, as we should, the physical abuse of women, but we don't take very seriously the emotional abuse of men. And there's something about the character and quality of the emotions that, as I said in my TED Talk, is just not taken as seriously as the physical body. What are the seen and unseen worlds you discuss in the TED Talk? We live in a civilization and a culture that privileges the seen over the unseen. While it may be true that no one lives their life dictated by their emotions, we're not supposed to act on our anger or act on our sadness, right? We're not supposed to allow those things to dictate our lives. But at the same time, the emotions play a role in synergy with the intellect. I think they can work quite effectively. So for example, if you're at home tonight and you're asleep and it's 3 a.m. and you hear your smoke detector go off, you would probably not be wise if you stayed in the bed and didn't do anything. 
you are not going to live your life and plan your day and your schedule and all the things that you do around when your smoke detector may or may not decide to alarm. But at the same time, if you ignore that smoke detector when it does go off, you could be setting yourself up for some real danger. If we could just apply that imagery to the role of the emotions in human life, one might say that the emotions are really the smoke alarm of human nature, that they are the alarm system. They are there to tell us when something is wrong. They are also there to tell us when something is right. This is yeah. what we call our intuition. How does something feel? How do you feel before you do something? Do you feel like you should do it or do you feel like you shouldn't do it, right? Doubt means don't, you know? So the emotions play a big role, a very important role in the human psyche. And yet we expect men to completely ignore their smoke detector. Whereas we tell women, you indulge that thing. You don't feel good about something. Something doesn't feel right to you. If you're a woman, you're supposed to indulge it. We tell women, you feel like you got to cry. Girl, go ahead and cry and get it out. And it's going to be all right. And we encourage women to do that. And we encourage women to do that collectively with other women. You know, I've always been amazed at how on one hand, Women tell men to cry and express themselves. And then when men express themselves emotionally, they're castigated as weak. Or when men hold it in and don't say anything about how they're feeling, then they're labeled as toxic, right? right. So men occupy a difficult place. It's a very difficult existential space to inhabit because on one hand, we are told that we're toxic for not expressing ourselves. Then on the other hand, when we don't express ourselves and we eventually explode one day, we're told that kind of masculinity is toxic because we're not expressing ourselves. So it's a very difficult place for men to inhabit. And I learned over the 19 years of my marriage to just ignore my smoke detector. My marriage developed a rhythm. There would be an episode of hostility and anger from my ex-wife that would result in some very mean things being said to me. There's a lot of emotional trauma. Being told that I have no sexual attraction to you. Being told that repeatedly over and over again. A lot of people say, well, Tim, your marriage couldn't have been that bad, could it? I mean, you did have some good times. And to that, I have to respond, yes, I did have good times. But we also have to remember that the nature of an abusive relationship is that it is not always bad, right? The nature of an abusive relationship is such that there are episodes of abuse that are followed by long periods of what seems to be bliss. Everything seems to be okay. And as soon as I would get to the point where I could start to feel like there was some solace and comfort and intimacy in my marriage, the next episode of abuse would come and I would be reminded in no uncertain terms that I still was not worthy of her love, that I still was not good enough. And so if you can just imagine that rhythm, if you can just imagine a relationship punctuated by these episodes of abuse and in between them, sometimes long periods of time, six months, eight months, where everything seems to be okay, and you put that together over 19 years, you get the classic paradigm of an abusive relationship.
It's a relationship where the abuse comes and goes, but it comes just enough to undermine and erode your sense of self-worth and make you feel like you're always destabilized, right? Always decentered, never standing on sure ground. My ex-wife made sure that the episodes of emotional abuse were just enough to keep me on my toes, I guess she might say. But for me, it was just enough to keep me off center and unsure of who I really was. This is exactly where the term gaslighting comes from, right? I was told to toughen up and just sort of deal with the pain. But the narrative about me being hypersensitive came into effect. And what I began to see as time went on was that my ex-wife had two faces. She had a very public face where she would praise me. And then there was a private face where that praise was juxtaposed to such a degree of mistreatment that I'm scratching my head thinking, which one of these is true? When my ex-wife would praise me in public, I would feel good. But when I'm told things in private, like, I haven't cheated on you yet, but with what you look like, you're making it really hard for me. When I hear that privately, and then I juxtapose that to the public treatment where I'm praised, I feel bad internally because of the private treatment. But then I'm looking at the public treatment and I'm thinking to myself, maybe I am being too sensitive because she does love me. She is talking about how great I am to people. She's saying all these nice things about me. So maybe it is just me. It's manipulative. It's total manipulation. So mm -hmm. in that moment, when I feel bad and I want to get out of the relationship, I'm suddenly reflecting on all the nice stuff that happens publicly. And I think to myself, maybe it is me. And it's in that moment I'm destabilized. And it's in that moment where I'm unsure about what is real. And I'm unsure if what I'm feeling is real. That's the achievement of gaslighting. The great achievement of gaslighting is to destabilize a person long enough to the point where they're not sure what's real and what's not real. And then in that moment, I say, I might as well stay. When did you finally say enough is enough? My 19-year marriage came to an end, the beginning of the end. In 2012, my ex-wife told me that I had neglected her. That's the word she used that I had neglected her long enough and that we were going to be celibate in the marriage until such time as I got on a scale and weighed in once a week naked in front of her. She would write down how much I weighed from one week to the next. And when in her judgment, she felt as though I had made enough of an effort to lose weight we would then resume a normal sexual relationship. And then on the heels of this, she told me a very vivid description of her sexual attraction to another man. This was it for me. I sunk into a sadness that was preceded by shock. It went from a shock to a deep sadness to an anger. And my anger then translated into me completely emotionally checking out from the marriage. And I, I want to preface this by saying this. Listen, I am not perfect. I have a ton of flaws. And when you get married, frankly, you sign up for the flaws of your spouse. Nobody's perfect. 
And when you stand at the altar and you exchange wedding vows and you go on your way, you sort of sign up to deal with the quirky tendencies of your spouse's personality, their shortcomings. You get married with the expectation that this person is going to disappoint you. And nobody expects you or your spouse to be perfect when you get married. But the kinds of things that led to my marriage's demise and that caused me to check out emotionally were not the result of personality quirks. It wasn't that I liked jazz and she liked R&B. It wasn't that her, she had some habit that got on my nerves, like leaving the top off of the toothpaste. It didn't have anything to do with any of the petty annoyances that come from our spouse's character flaws. I was well aware of that. I have plenty of character flaws that my ex-wife had to put up with. And she had plenty that I had to put up with. But the demise of the marriage did not occur because of those things. The demise of the marriage occurred because of a sustained, long-term erosion of my self-worth that came from within the marriage through abusive, manipulative behavior from my spouse. I did not sign up for that. I may have signed up for the fact that she likes to sleep on the same side of the bed as me, and I had to sacrifice that. But what I didn't sign up for is being mistreated. So for the better part of 2013, I was celibate from November 2013, 2012, all the way up until about September of 2013. I was married and celibate, but I emotionally withdrew from my ex-wife during this time. I began to make plans in my life. You know, when you're married, sometimes you get together and you just, in the middle of the week, you say, hey, what do you want to do this weekend? Oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. I stopped doing that. I started planning my own life, my own weekend. I never had an extramarital affair. I never stepped outside of my marriage. I was never unfaithful in that way. And so what I decided to do was take time to get into myself and discover myself. And that's when I discovered acting and theater. So I guess if I did have an extramarital affair, it was with the theater. <laughs> I fell in love with acting and I began acting. And what I discovered was that when I began acting, it was such a wonderful experience for me because the community of people in theater accepted me. They just accepted me as I was. They loved me as I was. I was not unworthy. I was Tim. People considered me to be talented. I began taking acting class after acting class and really, really working at it. I will say, looking back on it, that acting saved my life because it got to the point in 2013 where I was ready to kill myself. I was ready to commit suicide. My self-concept had been so undermined by the marriage that I felt myself to be completely worthless. And I really felt like there was no one in the world, uh, no woman in the world who would ever find me attractive or anything like that. I mean, it was just devastating. And I knew that I needed help when I went to sleep one night and the thought of me killing myself put a smile on my face and put me at ease. A lot of people think that when a person is ready to kill themselves, they're sort of freaking out. And I think the total opposite is true. People are very calm. They're very peaceful. It was an eerie calm and a peace that came over me when I thought about 
ending my life and how I would end my life. And as I began to plan it, I began to feel at peace with myself. And then I thought to myself, this is not normal. So I sought some help. In 2013, I began therapy. And so fast forward a little bit, my therapy dropped off in 2014 because I started to feel better. And then I realized in 2015, after my ex-wife renewed her request for me to get on a scale again, and she knew, by the way, how much that hurt me. We were almost two years out from that first request. And she knew. I told her how bad it felt. And she apologized. Did you forgive her or was it too late at that point? There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can forgive a dead person. Forgiveness only takes one person. For me to forgive my ex-wife is easy, right? That was an easy thing to do. But reconciliation, that is to say, a bringing back together of what has been torn apart demands a little bit more than forgiveness. It demands a recognition that there's been a transgression and a commitment to not do that thing again. And I could never get that from my ex-wife. No matter how much I told her I forgave her, and I did forgive her and have forgiven her, I could never get anything from her that said, I have been wrong and I will not do this again. If I had ever heard anything like that, I might still be married. But I never heard that. And the other point that I want to make, an apology is only as good as the behavior that follows it. So if I tell you I'm sorry, and then I continue to do the thing that led to my apology in the first place, of what value is my apology? Now, I might forgive you despite the amount of times that you keep doing it. I can still forgive you. But that doesn't mean that we have to continue in relationship together. It just got to the point where my ex-wife never took me seriously when I told her that her behavior toward me was abusive. This was the last straw for me. Her response was, you're making a big deal out of nothing. Wow. This is coming from a woman who knew that her specific behaviors hurt me and caused me pain, led me to the brink of suicide on more than one occasion, and still was unable to see that she was hurting me. And it was at that point that I had to make a decision. Do I remain in a relationship that will continue to cause my death, or do I go through the short-term pain of a divorce and then begin to live my life on the other side free of what I know will never be able to hurt me again. And I chose the latter course of action because in the end, divorce is not a method of conflict resolution. I don't recommend divorce to anybody. It hurts. It's painful. I'm sure it hurt my ex-wife too. But no matter how much it hurts and no matter how painful it is, I had come to a place where I had to weigh that pain of being divorced against the pain of being married. And I had genuinely reached a place where I had started to get well, and I knew that I could not be well emotionally and psychologically and be married at the same time. Those two things were mutually exclusive. If I was going to return to that marriage, I was going to have to give up all of the emotional and psychological progress I've made and settle myself back into a life of emotional and psychological dysfunction. And so when I got to that point, I filed for divorce. I did not want to be divorced. I don't think anybody wants to be divorced, but we do a lot of things in life that we don't want to do. But 
we do them because we have to do them. And in my case, divorce was an act of self-preservation. That was my pain. I went through the pain of divorce. But then on the other side, what I started to see was, and I separated from my ex-wife for seven months before I filed for divorce. And when I got up the courage to leave, I knew that I needed therapy. During my marriage, what was so powerful was, at first, I didn't know how to describe what I was feeling. I didn't really have the vocabulary to express my mental state, my sense of anxiety, the seemingly perpetual depression. And then I came across some information on a website. There was a quiz and the quiz was, is your wife an emotional bully? I went through the quiz and there were 15 questions and I think 14 of them applied to me. It was in that moment when I looked at those test results, depending on your score, they give you a designation. And I saw that I was a victim of emotional abuse. In that moment, I recognized the power of naming. I recognized that now I had a name for what I was experiencing. Now I could call it something. I know it's not just me. I know I'm not too sensitive. I know it's not crazy. I know what I'm feeling is real. And the power of being able to express myself in terms of a vocabulary that other people would be able to understand. Because mm -hmm. our experiences don't mean much unless we can articulate them and have a shared understanding of a community to reinforce what it is we've said so that the concepts take on a power of their own, a sort of social and cultural power of their own that reinforce the just treatment of human beings. I like to think about what would have happened 60 years ago if there was a woman who worked at a law firm as a secretary and she was being groped by her boss and told that she had to go out on dates with him or else, right? 60 years ago, we didn't have a name for that. But now that we have a name for it, sexual harassment, when women tell their stories of being groped in the workplace or propositioned by men and so forth. Now, look at what has happened. We have developed an entire legal and political infrastructure around sexual harassment such that every company, every reputable company has a sexual harassment policy, right? That was not possible 60 years ago. And 60 years ago, a woman who experienced that kind of treatment was unable to articulate her experience in a way that led to a shared communal understanding such that the concept would take on a life of its own and enable her to receive just treatment. And now we have that in the form of legal redress and we have a, a social stigma that goes along with a, someone in the workplace who's sexually harassing or who's abusive. And my point is that one of my aims with the concept of the emotional abuse of men is to raise such a level of awareness on this topic to the point where people start to see the concept of an abused man as something that's not only worthy of shared understanding, but worthy of an infrastructure that can bring justice to a victim. And there's so many layers to this because we have a hard time even conceiving of men as victims. This brings me to the first phase of my healing when I was looking for a therapist, when I first separated from my ex-wife, and I came across several therapists and asked them if they did work with abused men. And I had one therapist tell me, 
a man can't be abused. Only women can. Wow. I had a therapist that actually said that to me. And it goes to show you that even in the therapeutic community, there is a bias against the visibility of men as victims of emotional abuse. Fortunately, I found a therapist who did not hold that view. And I do want to say this to the men who are listening. Don't blame yourself. Taking ownership is not necessarily victim blaming. I don't want any man out there to think that if they're in an abusive relationship, especially an abusive relationship with a spouse, I don't want you to think your inability to set boundaries or take ownership of what you're going through somehow diminishes the wrongness of what is happening to you, right? Mm -hmm. So in other words, the fact that my psyche was compromised when I got married because of an abusive relationship with an older brother in no way justifies or excuses the behavior of my ex-wife toward me. It's just that in terms of my healing, I had to come to a place where I got to the root of my own dysfunction and then had to deal with that. So I hope that the men who are listening pay attention to that. If you're in the midst of some difficult times right now, reach out to a therapist and do your homework. Don't be afraid to ask that therapist, do you work with abused men? Do you work with emotionally abused men? That's probably the most important question you can ask. Sit down, have a conversation with that person that's hurting you. Understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You can forgive, but you're not obligated to remain in a relationship that's doing you harm. Whether it's a relationship with your spouse, with a sibling, with a parent, if you have an emotionally abusive relationship with a brother or a sister or one of your parents or one of your aunts or one of your uncles, sit down, explain how you're feeling, try to work through it with them. And if not, you may have to keep that person at arm's length just for your own health, safety, and sanity. So thank you for having me. I can't tell you how honored and humbled I am that you reached out to me and I wish you all the best in 2021 and beyond. I look forward to meeting you one day when I can shake your hand and give you a hug. Yes, uh, likewise. That, that's, a, that's a lost art in these pandemic times, but <laughs> I, uh, I got to get down to Southern California and I hope to do that uh, one day when this pandemic is over and I certainly will look you up. Yeah, when you're in town, let me know. And thank you, Dr. Golden. That was amazing. I appreciate you sharing your story with the listeners. And I also want to thank you for offering actionable steps they can take as far as going to a therapist, knowing when a relationship is unhealthy, telling anyone going through something similar that they aren't the problem, and it's okay to do something to change their situation. Uh, and you also mentioned being suicidal in 2013. This is for anyone that's in a dark place. You aren't alone. Seek help if you think you need it. So thank you again, Dr. Golden. Yep, thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Men Do Cry. If you like what you heard, please follow and share with anyone else that may find value in the episode. The podcast officially has an Instagram. Go follow at RMDC underscore pod for all updates on new episodes. Thanks again for listening. See you guys next week.